What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host Dave Martin Swagger. And Dave, I needed you here today because we have a lot to get through. So we're going to jump right in after we tell the people to subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube.com slash Nostalgia Pod and also go to SoundCloud.com slash Nostalgia Pod to follow the podcast any way you want to at nostalgia pod on twitter dave disney plus we've had it for over a year now and i think other than the mandalorian i've been kind of wondering why am i subscribed to this you know i i haven't really watched many of the movies on there i watched a couple of the other original shows uh not great and so i've kind of been wondering what are we getting out of this we got the mulan access still to pay 30 bucks for it and finally on there for free now yeah well we we do it for the pod so uh, (laughs) take our money but finally this past weekend disney plus dropped a whole bunch of news and you kind of start to see what the plus is all about right one could say that one could say that and it's funny because despite a lack of consistent content i think to at least to adults, you know, sort of new content. It's been Mandalorian or bust through the first year for just about everyone I know. Like, yeah, there's that Jeff Goldblum show. I don't really know anyone who evangelizes for that. Uh, the Right Stuff show didn't get well reviewed. But they still told us that 86 million people are subscribed to Disney Plus worldwide. And it's like, wow, when you have a killer app like The Mandalorian, that's all it takes, I guess. Or if you have children, in which case this is the... Uh, never-ending repository of uh, adolescent entertainment that parents have long wanted and needed to, they don't have to pay for rental prices and digital purchases anymore. So I guess that's all it was. But either way, you and I have a lot more to look forward to on Disney+. And it seems like Disney expects this uh, feeling because they forecasted that by 2024, they expect to have 230 to 260 million subscribers which is more than Netflix currently has right now, which is just a really outlandish, wild number to, to have them publicly project like that. But either way, uh, Disney Plus is not uh, slowing down. Yeah, and, you know, I think given the news that they ruled out, there's reason to be excited. I mean, it seems like there's something out there for everybody, and they're really doubling down in, I'd say, three places, right? It's Star Wars, it's Marvel, and it's Pixar. And those seem to be the three main areas that they're trying to build out with TV shows and movies. I guess I wanted to ask you, what was the news that was most exciting to you that came out of this announcement? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of angles to it. There's a lot. I mean, you can look up. There's a, there's a wide range of news coming out. You know, they said that they're going to be making 100 original titles, pieces of content a year which is like a fifth of what netflix does for context but still a lot considering it's a lot more than what they've been doing and you know there's like little tidbits of news right like it seems like hulu is going to become the searchlight uh home of her content so we expect french dispatch to eventually live there whether it's debuted there or after a theater run stuff like that comes out Expanding FX on Hulu to 30 shows a year, that's awesome, obviously, because we uh, 
associate FX with such a, a high quality. And there's some really notable new shows announced with that, like the previously known Shogun remake, but also, of course, Noah Hawley tackling Alien, which had been rumored but not officially announced. That's very exciting news. Um, and like Pixar, I think, no, I think to me with Pixar was they announced two original movies in addition to a uh, prequel or spinoff, in this case, a, a Toy Story prequel, Lightyear. I was like, oh, okay, cool. They're still trying to thread that needle in terms of what makes their bread and a creative, you know, expression. That's nice because they made a lot of sequels in the last decade. Yep. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it has to be the the Star Wars news because the Star Wars news was less known. Like the Marvel news, we already knew about eight mcu disney plus shows we got knowledge of a few more right the sam jackson uh ben mendelson one which we had a little inkling about the uh, ironheart one uh little tidbits like tim roth is going to come back for she hulk like but we knew we knew most of those mcu tidbits right and i guess john watts is directing fantastic four which i don't know about you but that's kind of a underwhelming choice to me you know he's the director of the spider-man movies but Either way, it's got to be the Star Wars news because a lot of that was unknown. Yeah, although I do have to say, uh, getting Christian Bale as Gore the God Butcher and what reading a, a little bit about that uh, that villain seems like that sets uh, Thor: Love and Thun- Thunder up to be uh, yeah. quite the, the what was that the fourth movie in that that franchise. So yes, I agree though. Star Wars seems to be the area I'm most interested. Of course, we got the Ahsoka um, spinoff, which we kind of expected. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, going to be filming in Boston. So uh, maybe we'll see some more Bill Burr in that. Boston, uh, England, that is. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But it's uh, it's interesting because we're getting Hayden Christensen back uh, to be in some of those episodes. Let's chew see. on with that one, I think. Yeah, I, I wanted to hear your opinion because I know that uh, he, he got blasted for his portrayal of Anakin. But I think you give him a little more credit than most people do, right? I think most people, I mean, it, it was a wooden performance, but the script was also trash. And, <laughs> and he, he, yeah, he, he was given a lot of shit. And I think a lot of people that like appreciate the prequels for what they are, or at least like the, the lore aspect, the prequels, you know, kind of just wish it went better for Hayden Christensen because it kind of like tailed off his career, you know? Um, and he's a good actor. If you watch Shatter Class, you would know that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just this thing, like just thinking about it, like canonically speaking, like, um they said it's 10 years after Revenge of the Sith so like about a little over halfway between New Hope and Revenge of the Sith so Obi-Wan's older uh Vader is well in his suit at this point right Mm -hmm. he's fucked up so like Hayden Christensen isn't just going to be like in the Vader suit right I have to imagine this is all in Obi-Wan's head or or Vader's head as well that way they actually can act without the stuff without like the age makeup and the armor and stuff i have to imagine it's something like that because we know from new hope that they don't actually meet between a revenge and new hope given the dialogue they have so it's in the head it's in the mind it's dreams vision stuff like that so in that sense there's a lot of opportunity so it's interesting but i'm just happy to see hayden again because a lot of people myself included kind of hope we got like him as a force ghost in rise of skywalker or something he did have his vocal cameo but um it's interesting it's uh tantalizing at least yeah it's definitely interesting and 
Um, I imagine it's going to be some flashback stuff, maybe some like Clone War flashback stuff. Um, I wonder if then that means Natalie Portman is also brought on board. Seems like she might be in good standing again, potentially with the She-Hulk and um, Hulk or uh, it's a Thor Thor. movie. Sorry. Yeah, she's she's confirmed to be in Thor. Um, So there's some some potential for that, um, but we'll we'll see. Uh, You know, out of the other movies, though, there was a lot of really uh exciting like shows or, or movies announced is there any that stood out to you in particular well it's kind of interesting as you think about it uh there's a lot lot of star wars news mainly shows the future of star wars in the interim is largely on tv and the best thing about star wars really since last year has been on tv anyway in the mandalorian but if you look at the, those TV offerings, it's kind of a lot of things, right? You have Obi-Wan, you have a Lando event series, you have a Soka limited series. Those are all known quantities to Lucasfilm, to the fans, right? They're all kind of like set in various eras. We got news that the Cash and Andor spinoff Andor from uh, Rogue One spinoff specifically is three weeks into production. So that's exciting. But again, that's a kind of a known quantity, known time period. The Bad Batch, you know, kind of like a continuation of the Clone Wars. Uh, lore in a certain sense known quantity it's acolyte that i'm excited about because that could be anything that's the leslie we knew leslie hadlin was associated with star wars as of a few months ago but this is going to be set in the about to begin high republic era of star wars content that's a that's a comics and uh not books um time in star wars that's about to begin at the beginning of 2021 it's thousands of years in the past and that, that new canon in the past way in the past stuff is being reestablished at this point. So Acolyte, that could, that could be anything because it's not connected to anything we've seen before. And those yeah. books and comics are going to get into that too. So it's exciting just to find, it's been a long time. We, we, we talk about it, think about it way faster than this stuff progresses, right? Like mm-hmm. Star Wars existing outside of the now quite familiar stuff we know. Yeah, I think that's definitely the one with the most possibility and you're kind of like, where's that going to go? But the one that got me going the most was Patty Jenkins uh, directing Rogue Squadron, right? So if we're going to get Top Gun, but just Star Wars, uh, yeah, I'm all in. Um, Sign me up for that, especially bring the video game back. I mean, that N64 game is one of my all-time favorites. You can get Star Wars Squadrons right now, man. That is uh, as flight simmy as it gets. That game is fun and and challenging. (laughs) But uh yeah, I mean, the thing about the Patty Jenkins, and we knew Taika was doing one, and we know Patty Jenkins. That's just two disparate Star Wars films, 2023-2025. So like I said, it's TV in the short term. Those, that's not a trilogy. That is, those are not connected. And from what we understand, Lucasfilm was taking pitches around town. What do you like about Star Wars? What interests you? What ideas do you have? And I think that's actually kind of cool if we're going to step back from the tradition of trilogies that we knew because star wars is a sandbox star wars has all this genre potential mandalorian is giving us a lot of that in in the western mold now we can get like like act like you said top gun can we get like some true action uh sensibilities right there's so much still untapped potential in star wars and i think those two movies could very well deliver on that when they're not you know beholden to uh you know certain legacy gatekeeping stuff like that so yeah, a lot of news but uh that's uh definitely exciting i feel like people just have a good feeling about lucasfilm again it's it, it's been a minute because it, it's been a very polarizing past few years so 
I think generally speaking, everyone's pretty happy with everything that we, we, we've, we've learned, you know, that's nice. I nice change of pace. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I think just in general, uh, I'm excited about pretty much everything coming out here. I mean, there's, uh, we're already looking at soul at the end of this month, coming out Christmas day, which we'll be yeah. reviewing, um, getting a lot of, you know, buzz for, top 10 lists and potential Oscar ratifications, but um, there's, there's just a lot of exciting stuff on the horizon and it makes you really feel like Disney plus is a must subscribe. So even though that number you mentioned is lofty, I think it's definitely attainable for them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny. Cause like not, not everything's exciting. You can tell there's some, some decisions that I really just like, God, turn out that content. You know how Netflix does it, right? They just make some stuff just to make some stuff, you know, they got to fill it out, but like sure. there's a prequel spinoff to Beauty and the Beast with Josh Gat, Luke Evans coming back. Like no one cares about that shit, you know? <laughs> like like no one's well, excited yeah, but... about that. That's like the equivalent of like the uh, straight to DVD sequels that used to come out back in the day, you know, <laughs> for those animated films. But it's just content for them. Yeah. But just I do a... think that they announced enough uh, like event content stuff. And again, if, if you like the more heady stuff, they're making more FX shows than before. So there's there's plenty there's plenty here, I think. Build out that library. And uh, you know who keeps building out their library? is Taylor Swift, Dave. Um, <laughs> this past Friday, we also got a lot of Taylor Swift uh, news because she was dropping a new album called Evermore, a follow-up, a sister album to Folklore. And I, I think if you had paid attention at all to folklore and then this announcement, the first thing that kind of caught your eye was same clothing, same style for Taylor, but in color this time. So you're thinking, Ooh, maybe we're getting something a little brighter, something that's going to be a little bit more out of that singer songwriter indie mold than this last one. And Dave, what did we get? We got more of folklore, (laughs) but not as good. Yeah. We got the B-sides, even if she evidently wrote and made most of these songs after Folklore was done. Either way, this is the B-side of Folklore. And as a result, it's just lesser. This is the third Taylor Swift album in less than a year and a half. This is uh, new ground for Taylor, but I do think artistically, Evermore is just kind of more of the same. Yeah, you know, I, I think... I mean, even the the production credits, I mean, mostly this is Aaron Desner, Jack Antonoff's not uh, as involved in this one. I think he only has songwriting credits on two of the songs. Correct. Um, And, you know, both of those songs, I think, stand out to me um, a bit. And maybe that's, you know, uh, that Antonoff touch. But it's funny because as we work through this album, there's moments that and these are all well-crafted, fine songs like you said i feel like this just more builds out her library and that that b-side and there's nothing that's really jumps out a lot i think actually the moments that jump out the most are when this is injected with some life from some guests whether that's the national um uh jumping on to to duet with her Haim kind of coming on to provide that like country badass woman vibe to nobody sure. no crime um and there's a couple of really catchy songs like i thought dorothy had a really catchy chorus to it and hook but a lot of these i didn't find as memorable 
as a lot of stuff on folklore. Any of the songs really stand out to you? Yeah, No Buy No Crime from Heim stands out, which is interesting because if you listen to it, it's like, ah, this this is like before he cheats from Carrie Underwood. Like, you yeah. you know these vibes, but mm-hmm. the song doesn't actually go all the way the way Carrie Underwood's 15-year-old smash hit did, you know? Um, but I actually really like that one because that, that kind of reminds me of like that. Taylor's just going to spin a yarn. Just kind of tell a story, you know, like she did on a lot of folklore, like the Great American Dynasty, for example. You know, it's just kind of telling a story. It's not really supposed to be anecdotal or metaphorical. It's just kind of just a tale she uh, likely made up. And here it is. And yeah, you, of course, it's Heim, like a lot of their guest spots. They're kind of just in the background uh, on the side. But I think that song's pretty catchy. I, I think it, it's one of the more upbeat moments. Uh, on folklore and evermore for that matter and considering that's not really what she's going for it'll just by design uh make your ears perk up a little bit more um so that's by far my favorite song on this i but i I just don't think we have like like deep deep cuts on evermore the way folklore did like there's no mirror ball there's no betty there's nothing that's like that exciting for like the hardcore people to discuss in my opinion from what i could tell you know, because yeah. this is a lot of kind of the same types of songs, but again, not as ambitious because they're not new anymore and just don't they they don't really hit because they're in, they're inherently soft and and and, and folk folk rock indebted. You know, um, honestly, I really did not like how it started. Like folklore starts off with the one, one of my favorite songs off on the album. I think that song is great. And this we get a uh, willow. And I did not like Taylor's vocal performance on that at all. I, in particular, uh, in the chorus when it's um, when she's singing like, "Hollow" in particular, like I, I just don't think Taylor's like range was getting there on that song to me. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this is this is her just kind of showing out and doing what she wants, which is cool and all, and that's kind of evident because Joe Alwyn is credited on this three times as a songwriter. Like you can tell she's just kind of doing whatever she wants and that's cool and all, but I don't think it's that special of an album. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I definitely don't think this is going to be one of Taylor's, you know, most, most remembered albums. Um, You know, I, I think her songwriting ability seems to really be finding itself again after getting a little bit lost around reputation. Um, And, you know, we've seen it, Growing and growing recently she was credited by i think it was dolly parton or or another very famous um female vocalist as being uh, a song a young songwriter that they look up to and that they admire their work so um you know songs like cowboy like me like i mentioned dorothy no buy no crime like those are really well-written songs gold rush too stands out but in the end when i, when I turn on taylor swift in a couple of years i'm not going to be coming back to this album i don't think I, I am interested though you know taylor after this year of uh oddity and uncertainty and you know if you watch the folklore documentary it seems like a lot of this was inspired by the pandemic and things that were going on taylor kind of felt like i just want to record and get music out i mean how, how are these songs going to play into her live shows which are these stadium arena tours or they just gonna be forgotten yeah i mean it sounded like pre-pandemic she didn't even want to do another arena tour after the lover tour it sounded like she was had different ideas 
for for that, which is interesting because that's leaving a lot of money on the table yeah. when you're Taylor Swift. But um, yeah, I mean, there's only room in a traditional arena set for a handful of these type of songs. You know, the, 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 here's the come down moment. We'll till t- t- Taylor gets the rest a little bit, sit down with a guitar or something, you know, and strum along to one of these acoustic ballads. And then she'll get back up and do some of the bigger hits, you know. And I think that's kind of all it is, unless she does a smaller scale tour where it's all <laughs> these kind of songs. But I really can't see that happening. Yeah, I was gonna say I can't see that happening either. Or she's gonna be doing like a lot more shows to meet the demand for these tickets. It's uh, it's a interesting thing to think about. Or is Taylor moving away from touring, which I think would be even more interesting because, like you said, that's a lot of money and really in the prime for career yeah that's the majority the majority of her money is made like just about every artist so that would be uh something for sure um well we'll we'll keep tabs on it but let's uh let's not spend too much time on taylor let's move on to another up-and-coming artist uh channel trace dropping uh, his third ep i can't go outside and he's been an artist that's really only kind of been around for you know, the last couple of years really making coming on the scene in um, 2018. And, you know, Channel Trace first came on our radar uh, with Disclosure this past year. Um, you know, that an album that we were, uh, we liked, maybe didn't love, but uh, I think definitely one that was memorable in some ways. And for me, um, Channel Trace's vocal performance at the top of that album was one of the first moments in that album. I was like, oh, shit. OK, we're we're getting some weird, some different here. Um, the song he was on was Lavender, their second song on that album. So I wanted to check this out. And Dave, I was I was really pleased listening to this album because not only did we get kind of what I expected. Channel Trace has a very low, deep gravelly sexy voice and i think his his vocal performance on most of these tracks kind of paired with some some chill hop uh r&b sounds but we also got a tyler and tanashi spot on this you know kind of coming in near the back half of the album um i thought it was just a, a pleasant little listen you know only 20 minutes long how did you feel checking out this channel tracy p yeah it's really smooth nothing uh Outside of my, albeit uh, limited expectations, that's not like a, I, I'm not super familiar with those first two EPs, but uh, yeah, I think it's pretty smooth, you know, Cali vibes, sound features. If you like, if you like that disclosure performance, you'll definitely like this. It's easy to listen to. Yeah, I think easy listen is definitely the way to go, and uh, I'm very interested to see. Uh, where he ends up going, you know, getting cosigns from Tyler, Tanashi, and then Disclosure as well, being a Compton artist. I'm wondering if maybe we start to see him popping up on some of those West Coast type albums. Um, you know, I, I could really see him pairing well uh, with someone like Thundercat for a song oh, sure. or two. Um, you know, and uh, of course, I would love to see him work with like Anderson Pock or something like that. So I'm hoping to get a couple more of those type of people on there any uh any songs that you really liked from this ep definitely really like the tyler song um yeah take your time. tyler much like his uh no sorry on the west side gun album earlier in the year it's just on a big uh big feature run 
the Yachty one as well. So yeah. He's a must listen these days. Yeah, I agree. Tyler uh, Fuego, that track really stood out as well as Take Your Time from Tanashi. But um, I really liked Skate Depot, which is one of the singles off this. Um, I, I really thought that was a, uh, a track with a, a beat that really stood out to me, kind of like thumping, moving. Um, and uh, of course, Channel Trace sounds immaculate throughout. So I recommend it. Just give them a listen. I think an up and coming artist to keep tabs on. And if you did listen, drop your thoughts below. But why don't we move on to some bigger albums that came out? Because we have we got a couple here. And we're going to start with Jack Harlow. And Dave, Jack Harlow was a triple XL freshman. Uh, he actually had a pretty meaningful verse for them, talking about a Louisville local who was killed in, uh, in the Black Lives Matter protests by police. Um, and it's a, it, that's an interesting thing to hear from him, right? Because when he blew up with what's poppin', I never thought we would really get like an introspective Jack Harlow kind of felt like he was meant to just kind of be like a party hits type rapper. Where, where did he go with this album for you? Gotta say triple XL is quite the designation. I was not familiar with, uh, that, 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 that magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, extra, extra, extra large for for Jack. (laughs) he's not that big um yeah in a sense it makes sense that he got the debut album out this year because he's had such a strong year such a popular year and you know coming off a grammy nomination at that for what's popping and if you look at the push he gets he's very much in the industry now and um generation now atlantic they uh they love themselves some jack harlow he gets choice placements he gets any feature he wants, as he says in this album. He's uh, he's mainstream now, and he really wasn't mainstream a year ago. But I don't like this album at all, to be honest. I think it's uh, incredibly boring and doesn't come close to something as simple yet effective as what's popping. I, I, I found it very disappointing. So... And, and like to say, like, I don't know what he was going for, as you asked. I don't know what he was going for because he doesn't try and set any trends. He just chases the trends. He sounds like everything else. He doesn't sound that he doesn't sound like I don't know what Jack Harlow sounds like after hearing this album, because this album just kind of sounded like mainstream rap music to me, but not of the remarkable variety. I thought it was quite mid. I'm surprised to hear you say that. Because, I mean, I thought this album, similar to Channel Trace, sounded pretty smooth. I think I think the production and, and the sound on here is, is pretty good. You know, I, I wrote down some highlights like on, uh, on Keep It Light. I really liked like the, the oohs and the, the o's around the, the chorus. <laughs> I thought on Same Guys, like the, the bass in that and like that R&B feel was pretty nice. We got a little bit of singing there from him. You know, Tyler Harrow, which I think is one of the um, singles off this is probably one of the most memorable songs. Great flute in there. But I gotta be honest, I didn't really find any of the verses very memorable. Um, Left my head pretty quickly and I'm left more uh, remembering the, the sonics of that's what they all say. Uh, Take a shot. If you are playing along to the nostalgia game, because we just said sonics and that's two now. Um, But (laughs) um, yeah, 
I don't know. This is just kind of like laid back, smooth hip hop, but I didn't find anything particularly engaging. Yeah, well, I think that, that that's the issue. <clears throat> is yeah, yes the the beats the beats sound good. He had a nice budget for those beats. That is evident. Again, it makes sense. But I don't think he did anything that special with them. He's just kind of making mediocre tracks. I don't like the flow all that much. I think the delivery is fine, but I think he's quite samey usually when he's doing anything that's like familiar in terms of him as a rapper. Um, a song like Tyler Hero, which came out um, around when the finals were still going on, that one, that one's quite the head scratcher to me because he starts it off with the ones that hate me the most look just like me which I find hilarious because the reason is he's successful as he is, is because of his whiteness, not, not because of his whiteness, you know, it's like, come on, dude. Like I find that actually incredibly unself-aware of, of a remark. Like you, you have a legion of white fans in addition to black fans too, but you have lots of white fans. That's why you're here. I, I don't understand where that line came from. Also, I thought he had a lot of weird quotables, a lot of weird one-liners on this whole album, including one on Tyler hero. I told Boy Wanda that we might got a thumper. I've been trying to pop. Now I'm on like Shumpert. What the fuck does on like Shumpert mean? Iman Shumpert's been washed for years and he's only like 31. What the fuck is that? That is such yeah. a whack reference. And you named the song Tyler Hero because he's your friend now and you're both white. But like Shumpert, what? I mean, oh, when I first heard that, I was like, what the fuck line is that? That is I'm, that that's whack shit, man. I'm never going to hate on Shumpert because uh, not only... I used to love Shumpert, but that was in 2012. <laughs> it's 2020. I mean, dude, he, he bagged uh, Tiana Taylor or maybe the other way around. I'm not sure. And they're also in that the, the fade video for Kanye is like a, a cat. Come on. Oh, you yeah. You mean 2016, the fade video. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, are you disappointed? I guess, what were your expectations for this? Well, that's the thing. I didn't have high expectations because I didn't like Tyler Hero as a lead single. I didn't really care for the What's mm-hmm. Poppin' remix, but that's really just because I didn't like the guest spots. Like, I don't need Tory Lane's Little Wayne making music with Jack Harlow. <laughs> I think he's all right in the tap-in remix, you know? I like him as a talent, but because what's, what's Poppin', it's so evident. Even, like, you know, from last year, Through the Night, his first song with Bryson Tiller, his fellow Louisville compatriot that's a little different energy than what's popping you know it's a little lighter that's good i like that but i feel like on this like him just kind of doing the standard braggadocious stuff i i don't i don't think he brings enough personality to it and it just kind of comes across as dull and boring to me which is disappointing because again when you have a nice beat budget you know i don't know honestly my favorite moment on the whole thing apart from what's popping would be on when it ends <laughs> no it would be on same guy featuring adam levine but that would be when you have that choir at the end singing exalting jetson made another one a few times jetson made of course the producer who made what's popping the half the reason jack harlow is here today because that beat is incredible jetson made having a great year and i think that's nice you know uh, shout out your producers a little bit more i like that touch but yeah jack himself disappointed me a lot on this album so I I had very little expectation for this and I thought it was fine. Like pretty memorable, 
pleasant listen. Um, probably not a good sign for an up and coming rapper for me to be saying that about them. But, uh, you know, I've been seeing in a couple places people comparing him to Drake. I couldn't, I don't understand the comparison at all. I, I was pretty shocked. I had to read it twice. I was like, really to Drake. And I think they need more so in like, maybe like style, it, you know, like trying to like mix like funny and kind of petty with okay. uh, sound. But um, yeah, I, I, if you go read the Rolling Stone review of this, uh, definitely confund. Yeah. And, and well, actually Fantano mentioned him too. And Drake is like a, it seems like he's copying Drake. Well, sure. I mean, who is we said that we said that about logic for years too. I mean, Drake dominates lots of stuff, but I I don't think he's like he's not a Drake like artist though. I think that's 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 pretty obvious. Like he does not have the versatility of Drake. Um No. But yeah, I mean like in terms of like Drake's rapping, sure, but Drake's rapping has shaped the past ten years of rapping. So I don't think it's actually that much of a statement. Uh, well, check out that that review, um, Jack Harlow. Are we putting any of these songs on the on the playlist? I don't think so, right? Don't think so. What's yeah. Poppin's already there. That song's great. So, uh, but check out the playlist either way. Nostalgia Best of 2020. You only got a month left before we start on to 2021. Damn right. And Dave, let's talk about another rap artist, Scott Mescody, Kid Cudi, Man on the Moon Three. Um kind of wild we're listening to this in 2020 i mean this really brought me back to uh college days sienna right. college days yeah oh nine uh, uh 2010 the first two album the first two man the moons and i mean those are those are classics uh at least at least to me uh, the first one for sure definitely um, the first one second one a bit more hit and miss but I, I still ride for that album and a couple of the tracks on there really stand out um but yeah man the moon three Getting it in 2020, just a you know, whole decade later. Uh, I, Cuddy's had quite the journey over the last 10 years. Uh, the starting, starting at the beginning of the decade, one of the biggest artists in, in rap and uh, starting to move into like the acting sphere. And then uh, pretty, it fell off pretty quickly, uh, had some substance abuse issues. Uh, came back in 2018, Kids See Ghosts, uh, I thought was a nice revival for him, moving in the right direction, had some good features here and there. And then where do we land with this? Do we do we like Man of the Moon 3? Do we feel like this is a return to form? Yeah, it's uh Cuddy contains multitudes, man. He's uh <laughs> it's been he's been uh through a lot as you said, but uh, Cuddy, I think, kind of came back from his darkest days some time ago at this point. Like, we've kind of had that conversation already when Kids See Ghosts came out two years ago. Um, and if you look at his uh, release calendar, it's not like he ever was away for that long of a time. It was more so that uh, from a quality perspective, there was a large dip, and he's kind of clawed himself out of that Um but to me, I was kind of surprised about this album drop coming because he he's uh, tweeted a few weeks ago that Man on the Moon 3 was on the way. And I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. Um, I'm sure that's going to be who knows you know, how far in the future. And then he just kind of surprised drops it and with an announcement you know, a few days before. I'm like, oh, shit, wow. Did not expect that at all. Uh, but again, who knows? Quarantine got people working. Nothing else to do. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of stuff on here that reminds you of those first two Man on the Moon records, the quote, old Cuddy. But it still sounds like, a, like I think, kind of new, newer stuff to me. Um, I think the Travis Scott influence is very evident on some songs. Travis Scott was barely a producer at the time of Man on the Moon, let alone a rapper. So um, there's been some growth and evolution. But yeah, this definitely continues the uh, upward trajectory we've happily seen Cuddy achieve since Kids He Ghosts. So that that's great. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is a, a solid album from Cuddy. I, I was getting texts from people being like, Cuddy's back, he's returned to form. I don't think there's anything nearly as catchy or... Uh, captivating as some of those early hits like there's not a day and night on this so to speak there's not something I feel like I would just throw on and like really ride to at a party but I think this this feels like a very uh, uniform and uh, I don't know if concise is the right word but one that had a clear vision you know and it's it's technically in four acts or maybe it's even five acts (laughs) no it's four acts and um I don't know it's a it's a bit uh, bloated at points. Yeah, it's it eight, eighteen bit, songs still at the end yeah, of the day, and it and it sounds a bit samey to me at a lot of points. But uh, I think overall, I, I'm pleased to hear this from Cuddy, and I feel like he's he's back, in, you know, he's back in the saddle again, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that that's nice. Yeah, it, it definitely was long to me. It's definitely bloated to me, um, and there was a lot of stuff that you know doesn't really i think register it's anything like that that's special because again we we've, we've heard cuddy pretty consistently since 2016 2015 that was the lowest point creatively with passion pain and demon slay and the rock album that's terrible or no sorry uh speed bullet to heaven is the 2015 rock album that's really bad passion pain demon slay the 2016 album had some decent moments he was starting to claws way back and then we got kids he goes right so like we've had feature here there from cuddy you know i think of through the late night from travis scott's second album i really like that performance he's been around and kind of giving you that stuff but cuddy's still 36 you're not gonna get man on the moon one anymore and that's fine and i think what's important to note is a man on the moon one in particular was a credible incredibly influential album on the decade that followed it in hip-hop i mentioned that on our uh, best albums of the decade list that album came out in october 09 but largely uh you know affected the 2010s and you listen to stars of today like playboy cardi and little uzi vert many of them cite cuddy as a primary influence and he in general was a a voice of a generation the same way kanye was before him but as a result, when you get Man on the Moon 3 in 2020, it's coming out in a hip-hop landscape that's a lot different than those first two Man on the Moon albums, right? So a lot of stuff Cuddy does and does well is not as unique or as revelatory anymore because he already made it revelatory 11 years ago. And a lot of other people do that. It, now it's just convention. So again, when I think of Travis Scott, it's because Travis Scott was a product of Cuddy in many ways. And now you think of these songs, like, I don't know. Do I want late period Cuddy any more than I want really good Travis? I don't know. It depends on the song. So I actually went into this with literally no expectations or hype at all because I'm like, anything I get that LA from Cuddy at this point is a complete bonus to me. You know, 
Like, I don't have expectations for Cuddy anymore. It's fine. He's generally pretty good, but, and I thought in a song on this, like tequila shots early on, I was like, wow, with that, with that bass, that hook, that is an old school Cuddy song to me. I like that song a lot. Um, I saw a lot of love for Mr. Solo Dolo 3. Yeah. Uh, because that's, you know, continuation, favorites. continuation. Uh, that's not like, that's never been my favorite type of Cuddy sound, although I do really love Solo Dolo 1 off Man on the Moon 1. That's uh, the whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that shit, you know. Yeah. Cuddy's giving you the hums and the woes. Uh, that inspired is that. Yeah. If, uh, if you can touch it. <laughs> Mr. Solo Dolo 3. Yeah, I think Mr. Solo Dolo 3 really shines because of just his flow throughout. It's so consistent and like sure. has such a nice rhythm to it. It's just really solid. Um, I actually like one of the tracks two songs later, Elsie's Baby Boy. Yes, um, a lot. Me too. Really stood out to me. And, you know, using that House of the Rising Sun sample from the animals is kind of calls back to his uh, When She Came Along song. I don't know if you remember that single at all, but mm-hmm. it's one of my favorites. And it's has that same like kind of Western type feel to it. But like, obviously, hip hop and very cutty. Um, Doesn't that have a Stand By Me sample at the very end? I think so. Yeah. The quote from the movie. And then yeah. he calls and then he brings in um, <laughs> uh, Castaway later on. Right. Uh, it's just funny how he like brought in, interspersed those throughout. Sure. Um, you know, another track that really stood out to me near the top of the album is She Knows This. Um, I don't know, just something about the, I think the flow again, just like that sounds a lot like Solo Dolo 3 again. It really calls back to those early albums, but it feels like there's a bit of like a modern touch to it for Cuddy now. So I think there's, like like you said, he's not reinventing the wheel here. You're getting some more of the same, but it's just nice, I think, to have that like nostalgia almost, um, and and, that, and some now nostalgia. Hey, <laughs> any yeah, other tracks that stood out? Oh sure, yeah. I mentioned Tequila Shots. That's definitely my favorite song. Um, I liked Another Day. I liked The Void. I think the hook on The Void mm, again, very reminiscent yeah. of Old Cuddy. I like September Sixteenth. Throughout this, I noticed this early on, is that a lot of times Cuddy's he would use flows like with ad libs and he would use his hums as the ad libs, which is very much a new development in terms of, you know, that's very much a contemporary use of ad libs. But I was like, oh, wow, Cuddy using his trademark hums in the ad lib context is actually freaking awesome. You know, speaking Mm -hmm. of the Travis Scott comp, I really like that a lot. Having pop smoke on this was kind of odd to me because it's yeah. just a little snippet used as a hook. It's not much of a pop performance, and you're pairing it with Skepta. And I was like, "Wow, I, I don't think Cuddy makes much of an impression at all on that track. I think it's really all Uh-oh. Skepta, yeah. like smoke and pop smoke. Uh, got guns as big as Kevin Hart. Like, <laughs> I like Skepta on that, but that that was an awfully odd uh, pairing or trio to me." Um, also, Phoebe Bridgers kind of like is floating in the background, does has that verse at the end. I was like, mm, this is more muted than I expected a co- this collab to be. How'd you feel about that one? You know, um, I, it was a strange pairing in my mind. I never would have put them together, but I thought it worked fine. You know, like it wasn't one of my favorite tracks, but I mean, when you think about Man on the Moon and just like what this whole trilogy is about it's about loneliness and who does loneliness better right now than phoebe bridgers so uh 
yeah her her soccer mommy uh shout out to the the sad girls out there um <laughs> and not shout out to taylor swift obviously um you know i, I, I when when you were talking at the beginning a thought came to mind i just want to run it by you you know cuddy and um, man of the moon one and the way that he worked with Ratatat and really like took this like electric sound and sure. like r- brought that into hip hop, it kind of reminds me of an album we talked about last week, Rico Nasty, um, and using hundred or hundred Gex. Yeah, you know uh, Dylan Brady uh, producing those songs like that feels like almost the evolution of of Cuddy and you talked about that influence. I think that feels like where things are going, where there's like this even more electronic like hyped up sound um, i mean i think about a song like alive and then i think about like iphone or something like that and it's like <laughs> yeah the, the, sure. that feels like they're all in the same vein i'm hoping uh to see that kind of continue to evolve because the the weirder these things are the more interesting i find them to be yeah i agree that'd be uh that'd be interesting and i think that's the thing too is <clears throat> Man of the Moon 3, even Kitsy Ghost for that matter. You know, Cuddy's not trying to establish new ground. It's kind of him just bringing his flair to what stuff sounds like these days. And Hyperpop, in a certain sense, is bringing 10 years ago to now and, you know, refracting it a hundred times and then, like, snorting it up your nose or something. But, like, I don't... I don't know if cut does Cuddy have that kind of stuff in him these days. Like, do you think he's like at the level of Charlie XCX and Rico Nasty as a thirty-six year old man? Like, I, I don't know. Like, no, like in terms not. of the weirdness, like, I, like we haven't seen him experiment in really any. I'm sorry, any kind of experimentation, let alone that kind of stuff. He hasn't really experimented in, in, in years, so I, I don't really know if that's a smart bet to make, but. Um, he's active so i hope that he continues to just bounce around and do things you know i mean he's he's certainly popular enough is actually funny enough going to be his best selling album week ever which i think speaks a lot to uh the streaming environment versus the uh uh complete lack of streaming when he debuted for example but uh yeah i mean cutty can just bounce around and do things that's cool with me but i i i don't think i'm gonna put too lofty expectations on him yeah, no, I, it also seems like he's kind of moved more into that acting sphere. I mean, we talked about him with We Are Who We Are, and I think he's just interested in probably building Westworld. that up. So, yeah. Oh, shit, I kind of forgot he's in Westworld. Mm-hmm. I, I, I try to block that as much he's as just I just casting something else, too. He's very, um, very busy, but music is just part of that now, not all of it, which is totally fine. Totally fine. Any last thoughts on this? It's got highs, man. Uh, yeah. I think people saying, like, Cuddy's back. In a sense, I understand because like there's some highs that remind you of old Cuddy, and that's awesome. You know? So I, I get it in that regard. Speaking of some highs, and also speaking of if we are who we are, uh, the Avalanches dropping their third album, first one since 2016, and it's the only second one since 2000. Um, we will always love you. And I mentioned we are who we are because the title track is sung by Blood Orange, and he's oh, just right. one of a dozen features on this. I mean, or dozens of features on this album. There's, I, I believe, 25 songs, 112 minutes. Mm. Not to mention from myriad samples. Myriad samples. And, you know, 
when we talked to, uh, did, I don't know if we did talk about the Avalanches album from 2016. I think he touched. We on mentioned it. that they were making the comeback, but I think we were pretty much overall like, eh, didn't didn't reach the highs of that uh, album from 2000 um, since I left you, which is was groundbreaking and one of the best of of that year. Um, I think we will always love you. Might be my favorite EDM album of this year. Um, it's expansive. It's loaded. I know you're gonna say there's there haven't been a lot of them, but the yeah, I was gonna say what are we comparing it to? <laughs> well, we're we're comparing it to Disclosure, That's which true. I'm surprised That's I didn't point. expect it to be beat. Um, yeah. And and to be honest, I was trying to think what was the last like EDM album we've listened to that like this much probably would have to be Charlie, um, not Charlie XCX, <laughs> Jamie XX. Uh, yeah. From a few years back. Um, this is a while ago now. Yeah. weird and experimental but uh i i thought it really really worked and uh, i think what i liked most about this was listening to it it kind of felt like i was at an edm show with the way that the the songs kind of ebbed and flowed brought the energy up brought it back down um felt very cohesive i was really impressed how are you feeling about we will always love you yeah i agree i think it's very impressive um 25 songs is certainly a lot um, 25 songs in 70 minutes actually kind of impressive to be that efficient but uh, I think the live the live show comp makes a lot of sense because we will always love you I think demands requires many listens just to like grasp what you're hearing because again lots of features lots of different musical ideas you're at the highs you're at your lows you're upbeat you're really slow you're dialogue heavy you're not there's a lot of stuff going on. And of course, there's so many voices because of all those samples and features. So I, I think it's quite dense in that regard. It requires a lot of, you know, almost effort to really understand if you want. But it doesn't demand that because it's so pleasurable to listen to most of the time that you can just kind of throw this on. And I don't I don't think I say I, I know I don't I don't say that about electronic music these days all that often. Um because I just don't hear this type of care all that often, you know, apart from like disclosure, who we often associate with choice and uh, impactful features and samples and ideas like that. And maybe flume to a lesser extent. I really don't know who I even throw into this kind of bag. You know what I honestly thought of? The music isn't actually that similar, but just the flow of the album reminded me a lot of like how Daft Punk albums function, where... Yeah. It's just grand sweeping thing. Maybe even Swedish House Mafia makes sense here too. Like, yeah, this grand sweeping thing goes up and down, but it's like almost orchestral in its vibe. And yeah, I mean, I still would like to spend a lot more time with this, but I think it's it, it's quite impressive. And you know, from what I remember about that 2016 comeback album, that almost felt more bloated because there was less space and there's a lot of guests and stuff. Again, this one. There's a lot of guests, but it seems to make more sense. And it seems like there's 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 room for all this. So yeah, I liked it a lot. It, it's all kind of centered around this like concept running through it of like uh, a goodbye message, kind of to like uh, I don't know human existence at the beginning of it, and then it ends with like this like uh, Morse code shout out to space in the last track of like sending human information. And uh, I think it, it kind of goes in and out of some of some ideas around that. Um, but the thing that I found most impressive and, you know, when we 
when we talked about Taylor Swift, I forgot to mention this. Like it felt like when the guests came on that the the sound kind of took on more what the guests wanted to do. This felt like they let the guests come on and, and show out, but it always kind of felt part of a whole. Um, and that, that's hard to do when you have a guest like Johnny Marr, you know, who's famous for being with the Smiths and the Pretenders and um, the the. And then you have someone like, Kurt Vile later on you're jumping to Sampa the Great uh Tricky Perry like you have so many different guests on here somehow they all just kind of work and they ebb and flow in and out they never feel like they're taking over a track like even I think the only track I even really thought about that with was Blood Orange on the title track I mean he just he raps and is just so distinctive in his sound it's kind of hard for a track not to become a Blood Orange track I feel like if he's on it and then also um one of my less my, my least favorite tracks running red lights with rivers cuomo um i felt like he's just such a his voice is just kind of grating to me at, at times and this is just one of those times where i was like yeah i'm not not really feeling rivers right here but otherwise it was just so impressively done and, and produced and cut together you know probably one of my favorite tracks was take care in your dreaming with denzel curry tricky and sampa the great um mm. i thought that was one of the like coolest hip hop like tracks I've, I've heard. I thought all three of them sounded excellent over it. Just a re- it really stood out in my mind. How, what'd you think about that track? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that's the thing about this album is there's hip hop in spurts, but there's like a lot of genres in spurts. Mm-hmm. And in that case, Denzel Curry is a logical choice because he's someone who very much dabbles in all kinds of sounds and ideas. And then Sampa the Great, uh, someone who people like, but Sampa the Great hasn't had like that big shining moment yet, at least in a mainstream uh, uh, stand, uh, standpoint. This that was quite the performance to me. Um, and yeah, that's the thing. It's like going into this, I wasn't like anticipating to hear like any cool hip hop ideas. You know, yeah. that definitely uh, surprised me. No, definitely. Um... You know, I think some of the the features make a lot of sense. Like, I think MGMT on Divine Chord sounds really awesome. Um, I thought it was really cool to hear the Wherever You Go, uh, the track with Jamie XX, which, um, you know, I think you can hear some of those signature Jamie XX, like, build-ups and the way the the track is layered on that. Um, But it's it's funny, because as I'm going through... I think the track that probably stood up the most outside of take care and your dreaming was we go on, which mm. flips and changes like two or three times um, has just like this awesome buildup. Um, oh man. I, I, that one's definitely going on the, the playlist for sure for me. Cause I, I was just blown away. I had to listen to it two or three times. Cause I was like, just really impressed with the way they kind of change up the vibe. You know, some parts it sounds like Asian influence that, and other parts it sounds a little bit more like the like pop EDM that we kind of come to expect, but it interflows and changes so succinctly. It's just really, really impressive. Um, any tracks that stood out for you? Yeah, my favorite song would be Music Makes Me High. I think that's just a banger. Yeah. That, 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 uh, that song is go. That song goes. That song is really dope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> Great sample yeah. again. And I think that's the thing you mentioned. All the samples they really chopped and screwed this together, but you don't really see the seams. It all feels uh, like it, it flows well. It's glossy, really, really well done. Um, also, just want to shout out uh, that 
you know, you kind of have a lot of names on here, but there's a lot of people that are uncredited in this. Like there's a Frank Ocean sample near the end. I forgot which song. I think it's on Music and Light from when he sings Moon River. Wayne Coyne shows up on uh, the track Gold Sky where Kurt Vile sings and Wayne Coyne sings the closing. Like there's just, there's a lot to get through here. So like you mentioned, definitely, definitely give it a few, a few listens because it's, it's too much to go through just one time. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> All right. Well, Dave, we're going to move on to some some movies now. We're going to start with The Prom, where I'm just going to talk real quick, because uh, I thought we were going to talk about The Prom this week, and I was not <laughs> correct on that. Um, but The Prom, Ryan Murphy's newest release on Netflix. He's working, Dave. And, um, you know, uh, The Prom was not a good movie. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to lay that out there. Uh, there. There's been some possible awards talk for james corden in this role uh he's on gold derby as like a dark horse for like a best actor a nomination it's not gonna happen um but i do feel like he has a pretty charming part in this and really the concept is um this this teenager in indiana small town small town indiana wants to go to prom with her girlfriend um and the school is very much against that um these famous Broadway stars who have a um, failing show on Broadway are looking for a PR win. And so they go to champion gay rights and really use this teenagers, um, the, the bias against her and the mm-hmm. hate against her as a way to like make themselves look good. And of course, you know, where it ends up is pretty sweet where they all kind of find themselves and look at themselves, come around. Um, some of those storylines for each character, you know um you have andrew andrew Reynolds, you have nicole kidman meryl streep james corden um for all four of them you know kind of hits differently james corden's story is about similar to the teenager in the story um being kicked out uh because he was gay by his family um it and then uh, meryl streep is just kind of trying to not be so narcissistic and trying to be a better person really is like the center of hers nicole kidman and andrew randall kind of just have bit parts where they come in and get to have musical numbers um but you know i i think there it's varying degrees of success for them but where the it actually i think really thrived as a film was the music it's mm. very much just like a play um you, you know you can kind of feel it's the based parts. off of one. Oh well there you go and um <laughs> I think Joe Ellen Pellman playing the the lead character as Emma um, is just really fantastic and uh, sings beautif- beautifully. Um, you know, a couple of, of her tracks really stood out. And, you know, I feel like she's probably a rising star out of this. Um, Carrie Washington has a pretty nothing role as, um, you know, the kind of the villain of the story, the, the principal who doesn't want things to change and, kind of uh homophobic in some ways um but yeah pretty much her and, and andrew randall were the two main parts i i really took to because andrew randall has a, a fun musical number about um you know being nice people and how being gay is is a sin in the bible but so are all these ridiculous things so we should just be tolerant of each other and not look to the bible for moral guidance on that thing uh yeah i mean overall music is good uh structure okay and some of the storylines are okay but for the most part i felt like this was pretty nothing and kind of continues the the trend for ryan murphy where he makes 
kind of interesting stuff that really isn't that good at the heart of it. So you going to check it out? Yeah, I'm going to look at it. You know, you need, you need stuff at the bottom of the list, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, Ryan Murphy, for what Netflix needs, some, you know, sometimes they just, they just need minutes. You know, they just need you to go out there and play the season. And that's Ryan Murphy. He makes them shows and movies, produces other stuff that he's not directly involved in. And, you know, if the stuff gets made, it's there, it gets watched. Whether it's good or not, eh, that that's for you to decide. That doesn't matter to him. He's just putting up shots. Yeah. And I feel like Netflix is very happy with this because he's doing exactly what he does. I think this is probably most similar to Glee uh, and, early, and early, I guess relatively early Ryan Murphy mm-hmm. hit, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, in terms of award stuff, I think the Golden Globes would be where anything had any potential with this, perhaps a song uh, pulls through, but um, I guess I'm most curious to see Meryl Streep because this feels like a bit of an outlier perfor- uh, choice from hers, I guess most similar to like Into the Woods several years ago at this point, but yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of, kind of a uh, and heck, even Kidman being in this, Kidman has been very hands-on with most of her work the past few years. This, I wonder if this was just a check for some of them, or they were really excited to do music and just have a good time. Who's to say? But, um, you know, I think you said that over, like the sweet sweeping conclusion by the end of the film that'll probably uh, win over enough people anyway who who like these kind of movies. So, you know, it's 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 not that deep at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, pretty pretty big nothing movie for me. We're going to be talking more Meryl Streep in just a little bit. Let's take a little uh, left turn, and we're going to talk about Small Axe, the fourth installment, Alex Weedle, the shortest installment of yes. the series, only about an hour long. Um, Dave, we talked about the first three, praised them all, felt like they were all really good. Did that continue with Alex Weedle for you? I'd say Alex Weedle's my least favorite of the three we've seen so far. Doesn't make it bad, but it's also the one that I think struggles with its form the most. As you said, it's barely over an hour long. The most episodic of the anthology films that we've been getting from Steve McQueen. And I would say that Alex Weedle kind of leaves you with a question with eyebrow raised about the second half of this story. Cause you know, in doing research, or if you know, going in Alex Weedle, successful uh, writer and creator in his adult life, like, like a lot of, I guess like red, white, and blue. We don't get the Leroy, Leroy Logan turning the police department around and having some successes, relatively speaking in Alex Weedle. We don't see Alex Weedle's, uh, actual like growth and changes in his life come to fruition we just kind of get those seeds planted when we see him reading in prison and stuff you know Mm -hmm. so to me it was like i don't know if this one did anything that different from red white and blue or mangrove to me like you have the small scale stuff of red white and blue you have the direct conflict with the police like mangrove you have a lot of things we have seen already from small acts, but I don't know if this one resonated with me just as much, but I still liked it. I thought, uh, I don't know. How do you say the lead actor's name? Shay Cole. Yep. Um, 
this is his first role. I thought he was quite good as Alex. Yeah, I, I thought he was really good. It's it's a, it's a, I think there's a lot to get into with this role, right? But it's it's a probably a tough one to play because it's a lot of suffering and silence, um, looking very uncomfortable, anxious, out of place a lot of the time because, um, you know, Alex Weedle's story is you know he was in what it was an orphanage or a foster home type setting that he gets kind of sent out of um and you know for facing racism is kind of what led to this right he he's taunted at school gets in trouble gets sent away and it kind of shows the story about how he is like this lost person who doesn't understand who he is and is looking for anything to kind of tell him gravitate towards music um then is incarcerated in the brixton riots where he's then kind of forced to face like that question of like identity and how he kind of comes to find it in literature and and understanding his own history his own background it ends with him finally exploring it and i think the the point of this story a little bit more you know to kind of juxtapose against red white and blue which i i feel like is a bit more about like perseverance and uh, making the hard choice even when seems like everybody's turning their back on you including your community when you know this is kind of going to benefit them in the long run um is that uh understanding of self and understanding of history and past and um the systems you come from is, is the only way that you can truly understand you and become the person you're meant to be um and alex Weedle goes on to be a very successful writer so um i think the I think the story could have used some more time on the back end to kind of let things breathe and maybe come to a, a bit more of a impactful conclusion. Um, but overall, I, I think this is still pretty quality from McQueen. Yeah. I think to that identity point, the line that stood out to me was uh, when the barber mm-hmm. is talking to him and like Alex is first kind of being shown the ropes of his new community. And he asked him, about being African and he's like well yeah maybe black but I'm from Surrey you know and it's like the question of well, what does it mean to be black in Britain yeah. in the 80s or late 70s I forget exactly when that was at that point but like uh, that is a resonant thing and like again like the identity and the uh, gray nature to a lot of that West Indian black experience in England has been a consistent theme throughout small acts you think of Leroy Logan's very conservative father, right? You think of the restaurant owner from Mangrove, who's not all rah-rah about the Black Panthers, like Leticia Wright's character, right? That's been a consistent theme. Um, I think that's probably the strongest stuff in Alex Weedle, again, is the coming to terms with identity and what that means at the time. For sure. Um, You know, even, even the bad or the bad quote unquote the the less good episodes or films in this series are are still really quality and really compelling to watch so uh tune in if you haven't been we have the final one next week we'll be talking about then giving our final thoughts on the the series slash mm-hmm. final film however we want to go about it prospect <laughs> yeah why don't we move on to an animated film which we don't talk about animated films too often dave but this oh. one wolf walkers i think definitely um 
definitely deserves to be talked about. And I, I think we'll be discussing it more when the, the Academy Awards come around uh, because this is uh, not only, I think, a really a really well-told and well-written story, um, but the animation in this is, is really, really fun to look at. Uh, kind of like reading a children's storybook in a lot of ways, it reminded me of. Um, hey, you were the one that turned me on to this. Uh, tell me, what made you want to check this out to begin with? Well, yeah, coming out of Toronto this year, uh, Wolf Walkers was just getting tremendous acclaim. Uh, what is it, like 98 on Rotten Tomatoes? Whatever it is, it's very, very high uh, uh, consensus at that. And I think the narrative quickly became that Wolf Walkers is the biggest challenge to Pixar's soul coming out of Christmas on Disney+. Plus. That'd be the biggest challenge of Soul's uh, best animated feature. Um, chances at the Oscars, which are still several months away. And I think that that's twofold. One, because Wolf Walkers is very strong, but also because it's made by Cartoon Saloon, whose three previous feature films were all also nominated for Best Animated Feature. So there's some pedigree here in the animation field. And that I think that, that tracks and makes a lot of sense. If you watch Wolf Walkers, which is available in the U.S. on Apple TV+, uh, now you would you would you would think that I'd imagine, and you know this is this is different than Pixar. This is two D hand drawn animation, very traditional. It's, it's very different, but I think the animation is still quite quite beautiful. You know, even if it's not the most uh, arthroscopic you know uh, stuff I've ever seen, it's uh, I think very very fitting. Like the music, the 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 beats of the story, everything seemed to kind of make sense and fit. And uh, I think, you know, it's a kind of straightforward story, but it's uh, I, I thought it was quite lovely. Yeah, I I found it to be really heartfelt. Um, and like you said, I don't think this is a story that's, you know, breaking new ground or something no one's ever seen. But I found it to be really effective. And I felt myself just totally sucked into and invested in the characters, you know, you, especially as you reach kind of the end of the movie, you're, you're waiting for the dad to to kind of pick his side and like take his stand and i think i think it's really satisfying when he finally does and you know you you find that he is one of them as well um i i also just found the relationship between the two little girls um robin and was it mora or um met meb sorry <laughs> um to be really, um, really just sweet and a pleasure to watch. And, you know, you kind of get elements of other past animated films, I feel like, like uh, when it, it almost kind of felt like the Nala Simba reunion in a way, um, when when Robin becomes a wolf walker and is kind of learning her skills and things like that. I found that to be really great. Um, I don't know. And then there's like elements of some of like the old, classic like quasimodo or like beauty and the beast type feel when they're like in the town in the village of kilkenny running around like it's just yeah. really really some some great moments and the animation is just super interesting i found like it, it it allowed for a lot of cool like cuts between scenes or things kind of like melding into each other as, it, as you change or transition it's really really impressively done overall yeah, no, I, I agree. Now, I, to me, I, you know, I like, like the setting. 
uh, I think the part that I liked about that a lot was, you know, Oliver Cromwell, a real life figure, is our villain here. And also like the piousness of him, you know, the, the strong presence of religion dominating culture at the time is a uh, very much part of the film. It all makes sense. And like the aversion to mysticism and, and magic and stuff and, and, and the woods, you know, I, it all, it all, it all, it all, it all kind of felt like of a piece to me. Um, I was actually, you know, trying to predict the beats. I was kind of expecting like the dad who's voiced by Sean Bean. I expected him to uh, kind of kick the bucket at the end, you know, um, mm-hmm. or I expected the, the mother, uh, Wolf Walker to get to get to get got you know but neither actually happens and actually has a very very uh, warm happy ending at the end of the day you know but like I think the stakes attention are, are really felt uh, on the way yeah and I, and I think um, I think how they portray not only the children side of like that longing for togetherness and acceptance and having to like compromise take your own path but seeing that for the adults as well especially as the dad kind of finds his role um being taken away from him uh his purpose kind of being belittled and and told that he's not good at it and having to like find where he fits in the world again and you know finding it by accepting something he didn't before I, i just thought that was really well done and great you know storytelling device so yeah, I, I would check. Well, I would recommend anyone to check this out if, if you're able to. Obviously, it's on uh, Apple Plus, so it might be difficult for some people if you're not subscribed. But any last thoughts on Wolf Walkers? Yeah, you know, I mean, you only get a handful of animated movies in a year that are both entertaining to kids and engaging to adults at the same time. And I think Wolf Walkers is one of those. So. Uh, it makes sense that it's getting a, a lot of acclaim. And I, like you said, I think expect this conversation to continue once we see soul and once award stuff starts rolling out, it makes a lot of sense. Let's move on to our final film of the day, Dave, let them all talk. And, um, you know, we talked about Ryan Murphy working. Steven Soderbergh has also been working. We talked about him twice last year, high flying bird and the laundromat for Netflix now dropping let them all talk on HBO Max. Um, also has a another film for HBO Max coming out next year called No Sudden Moves. Oh yeah, he's Loaded he's working. Cast. He's working. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. Um, but you know, this is a story of uh, a Meryl Streep, a famous author, um, taking her her friends on a journey or uh, on a, a cruise a trip. Yeah. Um, you know, bringing crossing. Her, yeah, bringing her nephew along. Um, and and you know, her publisher trying to uh, use the nephew to kind of like push the the writing of a new book in the direction they want to go. And, and mayhem ensues, not really mayhem, but some, some interesting dynamics ensue. And as these relationships are kind of fleshed out and they're, you know, especially Meryl Streep and her friends are kind of forced to like face each other. I think there's a lot of stuff to dig into there. Um, you know, why don't we start with just Soderbergh in general? I mean, uh, we talked about Fincher last week, Fincher, one of the top tier. Do you see Soderbergh in that, that same discussion? Yeah, for sure. And I think he's very interesting because Soderbergh pushes boundaries and tries new things quite often. You know, just in the time we've been doing the pod, he had Logan Lucky where he was very hands-on with the distribution in a unique and uncommon way. 
you had Mosaic, a TV show on HBO, which was like very interactive, multi-screen experience. You have High Flying Bird and Unsane, which were shot on iPhones. Uh, not to mention we had Contagion take on a whole new context in life and dominate iTunes charts when the pandemic first started. Um, he's all he said he's always working and this is the first of a three film deal now at HBO Max after previously doing some stuff with Netflix, as you said. So Soderbergh always feels like he has his finger on the pulse and is always trying to do different stuff. And I I think he deserves lots of uh, leeway and and rope because he's working so often and has all kinds of different ideas. And in this case, I I think let them all talk certainly factors into this because he literally made a movie on the voyage of the Queen Mary 2 between North America and England. And that is inherently a fixed amount of time to make and shoot the movie because once the voyage ends, the movie shooting is over. And only someone like Soderbergh would try something as zany as that, you know? And that's really cool. And I also think the movie is a, a lovely time, like a lot of his movies are, so... Yeah, Soderbergh, he's definitely at the top, but he's has definitely his unique identity as I think everyone knows at this point. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because that when I think about Soderbergh, I think about you know like the Oceans movies, probably his his biggest commercial successes, you know, Magic Mike. Um, and, but I I think uh, especially in recent years, he's definitely just trying stuff more. He's trying some some less traditional the filmmaking things like you talked about and i do give him credit for that but i I think it's been to varying effect you know the laundromat we talked about had some some issues uh high flying bird i think was really underrated um but i I think movies like magic mike and high flying bird and let them all talk i kind of see in a similar sense because these are really like human stories uh kind of centered around like uh you know uh, outstanding you know, job or, uh, yeah, I guess it's usually a job, you right. These, these non-traditional jobs. And I think let them all talk being, you know, Meryl Streep being this author kind of allows for this, this journey where it's really these friends, uh, dancing around each other as they have all these interesting built up resentments towards each other that they can't find a way to say. And at the center of this is Lucas Hedges, who I think is, in a funny role for him you know i we he's he works a lot too and i think he gets to kind of play this like conduit between all these relationships this in-between man um while also trying to like pursue his own um interests and i think he i I found him to be probably one of the most delightful parts of the movie was just him at the center of all of this weirdness um that and I, I have to say, um, I was really, really taken by uh, Gemma Chan. I just found her super charming in this movie, and and kind of couldn't take my eyes off her whenever she was on screen. Um, but the rest of the movie, I'm not sure how interesting I found it to be. I think at times I found myself a little bit bored, or like eh, I, I wish they would just kind of like finally have it out. But um, <laughs> yeah, were, were you feeling the same way? Uh, well, it didn't. Yeah, I think because it doesn't do what you expect. It, you know, uh, Meryl's character dies. They don't really, you know, right after everything happens, and it's like you, you. I think going in when you think about the premise, you think it's going to be like this big to do, this this big fight or something or some like 
hijinks are gonna happen. But no, it's really these three seventy-year-old women chilling, mm-hmm. kind of talking and stuff. And like for me, it's like when Diane Weist is like bow down, bitch, when they're playing Scrabble. It's like those yeah. are the moments that I think are, are the best about that stuff, you know. So it's it's dynamics you don't exactly expect, but like. On the other hand, like Meryl's character interacting with that other writer who's like a Dean Koontz, like makes many books. They're not that great, though, but they sell a lot like that kind of author. And she's much more heady, um, take her time, really self-serious type author type. I like those dynamics, like those thoughts, because those kind of persist throughout the movie and interact a lot with Gemma Chan's like role in the film as like a agent of her publisher. Right. So. That stuff was cool. But yeah, I actually think the most compelling stuff is definitely Lucas Edges kind of like batting his eyes at Gemma Chan yeah. and like seeing if this is going to be like a pseudo romance, which was unique to me because uh, she's much older than Lucas Edges in real life. And usually it's the other way around, right? Where the woman's way younger than the older man. So that kind of stood out to me for that, especially because like as the movie's going on, you're seeing this uh, dude keep leaving. Meryl's apartment and you're like huh what's that about and then it's it's kind of a twist that he's actually her doctor right so yeah yeah I mean it kind of had a a unique rhythm to it but yeah for me it was definitely the Gemma Chan scenes I think I think she was she was really great no I uh, Gemma Chan was great and I also going back to the uh the doctor part um you know John Douglas Thompson playing the doctor I thought that was I thought that was probably one of the funniest moments of it for me when he ended up being the, the doctor. Cause when you, then when you go back and you look at all these scenes, you know, especially as they're kind of juxtaposed against Candace Bergen, who is, you know, really just like gold digging on this boat in a sense, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're just kind of like, Oh, Meryl Streep trying to get it in as well. When really it's, you know, the yeah. doctor's watching her cause she has this heart issue that, or this medical issue that yep. was unknown. He was acquitted, right? That's not so bad. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Candace Bergman is definitely having the most fun. Oh yeah. Um, of the three older women, she that's probably like the the best role. Like, it's just get For the sure. show out like that, and be funny the whole time. I mean, even when they go back and show her working for uh, Victoria's Secrets or whatever that you know the women's underwear thing is, mm-hmm. like it's always funny when she's going back and forth with the the manager. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean. I'm never going to complain about a Soderbergh movie. I think there's just types of Soderbergh movies I prefer. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Well, I would definitely say that the next one, No Side of Move, definitely has more of the Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Trilogy vibes, right? The film focuses on a group of criminals falling into a trap. And then you look at that cast. Cheadle, Del Benicio, Harbor, Ham, Leota, Kieran Culkin, julia fox matt damon cameo it's like yes please i'll take yeah. all of this as soon as possible thank you yeah uh when is that coming out <laughs> uh no <laughs> date yet, tomorrow? but, but it, production wrapped in november so you imagine it'll be an edit for a few months and then it'll come out middle end of the year on hbo max so that's exciting also yeah. gamma chan will be in our live soon too because she got the rare recasting in the mcu and is one of the Eternals, and also is in the uh, Don't Worry Darling movie, which is that Olivia Wilde movie with Harry Styles and Florence Pugh. So, hell yeah. She's, Give her more uh, roles. She, yeah, I think she's, you know, Crazy Rich Asians was the blow up for her a little later in life. Mm. But like, 
it's, it, I think it's clear everyone knows Gamma Chan's really good. So she's probably being selected with her parts at this point. For sure. Uh, you know, we can't watch the, the, the next Soderbergh movie, No Sudden Moves yet. But Dave, what should the people be watching or listening to? Yeah, Tenet out on VOD at last. Watch that on the best screen and sound system you have. Mandalorian wrapping up season two. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The Chadwick Boseman tour de force performance, evidently. That'll be out on Netflix on Friday. As well as the end of Small Axe on Prime. And also, I think we, we, we're excited to check out Another Round, which is a Denmark film starring Mads Mikkelsen involving drinking alcohol and will be Denmark's submission for Best International Feature. Um, Mads Mikkelsen and beer. I'm down with that. <laughs> uh, so follow the pod on Twitter at NostalgiaPod. Subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com slash NostalgiaPod, and then soundcloud.com slash NostalgiaPod. Uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah.